Chapter 32 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dodie. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 32. Mitchell says some more. But before Gladys, leading Jerry, reached the door, Cordelia again heard Mitchell's voice. It was polite, pleasant. "'Just one other little matter before you go, Miss Norworth. "'Excuse me, I should now give you your correct name, Mrs. Grayson. "'I have not quite finished what you term my confession, Mrs. Grayson. "'And you too, Mr. Plimpton. "'I think you also should hear the rest of my confession "'before completing the plans for your marriage.' "'The pair turned about. "'Please make it brief,' Gladys ordered haughtily. We've been here quite long enough. I shall be extremely brief, Mrs. Grayson, for I now have very little left to tell. And it all relates to one single fact. I believed as thoroughly as you did, and as other people did, that the report of Billy Grayson's death was true. When the war was over, and my regiment was waiting in England to be returned to Canada, and straggling prisoners of war from German prison camps were being returned to their original outfits. Why, just imagine my surprise, Mrs. Grayson, when Billy Grayson came plumping into me. The flashing hauteur of Gladys's face turned instantly to gray ashes. She swayed and clutched Jerry. Billy Grayson was alive? Her stiff lips whispered. He was as alive as you are, Mrs. Grayson only very thin and horribly dirty and terribly in need of a shave. Again Gladys swayed into a chair and collapsed, huddled as if with melted bones, sat staring at Mitchell with wide, uncomprehending eyes. Cordelia could guess how utterly stunned Gladys was, the life almost knocked out of her by this revelation, for she herself was reeling with stupefaction from the surprise of this last of the many things Mitchell had had to say. "'Alive?' mumbled Gladys' stiff lips. "'Alive? How?' "'That's a very commonplace story, "'though it was anything but commonplace to Billy "'in living it for two years and more. "'The war had thousands and thousands of cases just like it, "'too old and common a story to bother you now with its details. "'Men officially reported dead, no news from them. "'And then the war ended, the German prison camps emptied, these officially dead men turned up. There were so many of them that they were not even news. Billy's return didn't even get a line in the papers. You see, officially, he was a person of no importance. He had never got his expected commission. He was reported dead before the papers could go through. And as for his having once been a spectacular hero, that, of course, had long before been entirely forgotten. And so... Outside his own company, and outside his few friends, no one paid much attention to what had happened to Billy. And you, not being interested, very naturally did not hear. With her gray, loose face, Gladys stared at Mitchell in silence. Billy's first question, Mrs. Grayson, Mitchell continued, was about you. All those two years in the prison camp, he had been thinking of little else except you. 
thinking of you was the one bright thing for him in that hell of his life. He was more in love with you than ever, and you? You weren't fit to kiss the rags of his shoes he wore. He wanted to get right to you. I wasn't going to let a fine, loyal man like Billy be humiliated by you, have him break his heart in your presence. I wasn't going to let the man I loved, a man with the tremendous woman hunger that a war prison creates in one, go silly about your foolish self again. I was going to cure him, if a cure was possible, but I certainly had my work cut out for me. I broke the thing to him, bit by bit. I told him a few technical lies, but in its essence, everything I told him was the truth. I told him that you were ashamed of him because he was a mechanic, that you had never acknowledged your marriage to him, that when the report had come of his death, you had been glad for it had freed you of the shame of ever having to acknowledge him as your husband, that, hiding the marriage of which you were ashamed, you were passing yourself off as an unmarried woman. There was one important fact I held back from him, Francois. I was afraid if he knew he had a son, it might upset all my plans to cure him, to save him. I felt sure Esther would save the son. Just then, the most important thing in the world to me was to save the father. So, I told him these things. Later, he had a chance to prove them to himself. He has seen you often, Mrs. Grayson, when you didn't know he was watching you. What he learned at first broke his heart, but it cured him. He's simple and modest, Billy Grayson is. But he's got a real man's pride. He wanted nothing to do with the wife who was ashamed of him. Again, slow, dazed words came from Gladys's stiff lips. So, he's really alive? Still alive? He's still alive, Mrs. Grayson. He's gone back to his old trade. He runs a garage out in Cleveland. I'm sure, Mrs. Grayson, all your society friends will be delighted with your splendid match when they learn that your husband runs a garage. His last thrust was wasted on her. She was feeling too many other things just then to feel mere irony. And he, she mumbled on, he, he knows all this? He didn't know it all at the time, but he knows it all now. Everything. Five days ago, I told him everything, including the deceptions I practiced first to revenge him and later to save him. And he's forgiven me. Not till five days ago did he know that he had a son. A few minutes ago, you declared to Esther you intended to take Francois back. You will not. Billy has gone crazy over Francois, and Francois has gone crazy over Billy. You would have had a poor chance of getting him away from Esther, to whom you gave what amounts to a quit claim. You'll have no chance at all to get him away from his father not with your record as a wife, and particularly your record as a mother. Breathless from the swift development, Cordelia looked across at Esther. Esther was pale, but her set face held no surprise. It was evident that Esther had known all these things before she had entered the office, had perhaps known them for days. Cordelia's head turned back just in time to see the limp figure of Gladys fling itself with galvanic energy from its chair. 
I don't believe it, she cried to Mitchell with a hysterical burst of imperious defiance. You're trying to trick me again, as you did before. It's lies, all lies. But you can't fool me this time. I don't believe a word of it. This time, I'm not asking you to believe a word of it. Mitchell stepped to the door of his inner office, opened it, and called. Just step in here a minute, Billy. Cordelia, her breath again held, watched the open door, and there walked in. She already had a swift suspicion as to who Billy was. There walked in the big, pleasant-faced Mr. Aldrich, who had been so much about their apartment these past few days and who had grown so friendly with Esther and Francois. As he entered, the glow of her imperious defiance left Gladys as though it were a light that had been switched off, and her face had the wild, appalled stare of those who gaze upon the unwelcomely resurrected dead. Billy? Billy Grayson? came in a faintest breath from her. Gladys said no more. She could say no more. No one else spoke. Cordelia, though almost as amazed as Gladys, yet got an impression of the scene as a whole. Mitchell and Esther showed no surprise. This was their play, enacted according to plan. And also Grayson showed no surprise, though he was very white as he gazed straight into the eyes of the wife who had been ashamed to own her husband, the mother who had been ashamed to own her child. The eyes of the two silent men, who were they anyhow, were popping with excitement. And Gladys? She continued motionless with that stricken, frightened, appalled, world-lost stare. And Jerry? He had the ghastly pallor of a sick man who was dying on his feet. Cordelia's eyes, now far more sensitive to real values than in other days, instinctively compared Grayson and Jerry, the husband with the husband that was to have been. Her judgment was instantaneous, incontrovertible. Judged upon his worth as a man, how very much the better, oh, how very much the better, Gladys's first choice had been. The faint, worded breath again issued from Gladys's palsied lips, and once again she spoke wholly from the angle and with the color of self-pity. Billy Grayson, why have you kept us hidden all these years, only to make it known at such a time, such a time when I was about to marry? Marry? Her whisper dwindled away into silence. Let me answer her, Billy, cut in Mitchell. I've begun this business with her. Let me finish it. Mrs. Grayson, I'll divide what you ask into two parts. Why was this kept hidden from you all these years? To suit me. That is part of the answer. And you may go as far as you like in blaming me. Billy's part of the answer is this. You had never, except during the first few days, shown the slightest interest in him as a husband. In fact... You have hidden the fact all these years that he is your husband. I told you Billy had a man's pride. Since you were too proud to recognize him, he was too proud to recognize you. And since you had hidden the marriage all these years, he decided he also would hide it. The relationship was a dishonor to him. He was glad to be clear of you. 
and he would not now be coming forward and admitting the disgrace of being your husband did he not desire to prevent your becoming in actuality what your pride has for years falsely led you to believe yourself to be a bigamous wife. Is that much of the answer plain enough? It evidently was, but she did not speak. In connection with that, here's another point, Mrs. Grayson. Now that Billy's had the humiliation of having had publicly to recognize you as his wife, you are going to have the humiliation of remaining publicly his wife. You are probably already thinking of a divorce. Well, you'll never get it. Not if I have my way. As for Billy Grayson, I'll say he's not interested in another woman. His one marriage has cured him of women. He's satisfied to let the cards rest exactly as they've fallen. You can't get a divorce in the state of New York. You haven't grounds for action, and you won't be given grounds. And if you go to another state and start suit on some such grounds as desertion, he'll be in that state and in court to prove that he hasn't deserted you. He's not anxious to live with you, not at all. Though if you insist, you can have half of his apartment above his garage. No use trying to get out of it. You are now Mrs. William Grayson for keeps, wife of the garage man. And now, Mrs. Grayson, for the second part of your question, Mitchell went on. But first, there is still one other little fact I should make known to you and Mr. Plimpton. I have told you that these two gentlemen, Mr. Emerson and Mr. Bailey, were interested in our conference, but I did not tell you the nature of their interest. That information I shall at this point give you. You and Mr. Plimpton will recall that on an earlier occasion when Mr. Plimpton's marriage arrangements were disturbed, there was present a very considerable representation of the press. It seemed to me that on this occasion when Mr. Plimpton might feel that his marriage arrangements were being a second time disturbed, it would be no more than fair that the press should again be represented. But I could not accommodate a crowd, only these two. Mr. Emerson represents the Associated Press, which serves newspapers throughout the country and through allied agencies throughout the world. Mr. Bailey is from the City News Association, which serves news to all the papers of New York City. Together, I am certain they will secure us adequate publicity. Neither Gladys nor Jerry at that moment seemed concerned over this matter of adequate press attention. Now, Mrs. Grayson, for the second part of your question, why was this kept hidden only to be told when you were about to be married? Mitchell's voice was now hard, driving. You yourself are chiefly to blame for this. And this Jerry Plimpton is partly to blame, if, on what was to have been Miss Marlowe's wedding day, you had not, by your lies, disgracefully broken up her marriage and smirched her reputation. This thing would never have happened in this way, never. You would have been told, of course, but told in some quiet manner and with no intent of publicly humiliating you. But on the day that you publicly smashed Miss Marlowe, I swore that I was going to hold this thing back and wait for the day when you were in the same situation Miss Marlowe was at the time in, engaged and about to be married. And then, exactly as you had smashed Miss Marlowe with lies, I would smash you with the truth. And I've done it. I wanted to pay off the cat of a Jerry Plimpton, too. But in my best dream, 
I did not see such luck as this. The two of you, the two of you at once. The two of you. And now, Mrs. Grayson, is this sufficient answer to your question? Apparently it was. At least she asked for nothing further. Mitchell turned to the two newspaper men. On that other occasion to which I have referred, someone remarked to the reporters that he believed they had a rather interesting story. I can now repeat that remark. I believe you have a rather interesting story, very. For myself, I make just one request. Try to see that the papers print Miss Grayson's sworn confession, clearing Miss Marlowe. That's why I gave you the copies of the affidavits. The papers will eat that alive, exclaimed the city pressman. Mitchell now turned to Jerry. On that previous occasion, Mr. Plimpton, you were asked if you had any little announcement you wished to make to the press concerning your marriage. You had. The situation now is more or less the same. So again, the same question is put to you. Have you any little announcement you wish to make to the press concerning your marriage? The sick-faced, benumbed Jerry apparently had neither anything to say nor the power of saying it if he had had. Then I'll say it for you. Again, Mitchell's voice was hard, driving. And if the newspaper men, fearing libel laws, think it's safer not to express their opinions of you in their own words, they are at full liberty to quote all I say and to quote me as saying anything I should have said, but I've left out. If you feel this is a disgrace to the important Jerry Plimpton and a disgrace to the sacred Plimpton name, just remember that you had it coming to you and that you brought it upon yourself. Instead of being man enough to respect and trust and believe the woman you had promised to marry, when the worst against her was nothing dishonorable but was that in her ignorance she had acted a bit foolishly and had been duped, instead of being a real man, you chose, on Miss Marlowe's wedding day, to believe the lies of this liar here and the lies of another liar, as against your promised wife's truth, and you publicly cast her aside and publicly discredit her. I hope, you damned cad, that you and your Plimpton dignity writhe till your last days, and I hope that the newspapers laugh you out of the country. Mitchell took Jerry by his arm. I've been a butler in my time, Mr. Plimpton, and as such it has been my duty to show many men the door. But in all my life I have never had so much pleasure in showing any man the door as I now have in showing you the door. And I hope that all the world shows you the door. As he spoke, Mitchell had been pressing Jerry, unresisting and still speechless, before him across the room. At the last words, Mitchell pushed Jerry through the door and then closed it. Cordelia had been watching Mitchell and Jerry, but Gladys, eyes on her husband, had taken no notice of this last. Cordelia's gaze now shifted to this pair. For a space, there was utter silence in the room, not a motion. Gladys's look was still what it had been when she had first seen her husband enter the room. That stricken, appalled stare of one gazing upon the unwelcomely resurrected dead. His white face continued gazing steadfastly into her eyes. He had not uttered a single word. Thus, with wife and husband gazing at each other, several moments passed. 
Then Gladys's eyes wavered. She turned away, and without another word to him or any of them, her body drooping forward, she unsteadily crossed the room, fumbled at the door, and passed out. End of chapter 32